0: Okay, we've been discussing the uh, the Great Discourse, uh, the Discourse on the Great Forty. This is Sutta number 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya. And just to recapitulate a little the ground that we covered, in this Sutta, the Buddha is explaining the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, but instead of explaining them in the usual way, just as a straight, explanation of the, of the path. Okay, in the sutta, instead of defining the, p- the path factors in the usual way, just one by one, the Buddha is explaining them as factors of what he calls the noble right concentration, that is Arya-sama-samadhi. Um, a- Arya so what the Buddha is doing is taking the culmination of the path, as his point of departure, and then showing how all the other seven factors of the path are components of this noble right concentration, constituents or accompaniments of it, and also how they form a sequence of steps (coughs) leading up to and culminating in right concentration. And now we've been going through these path factors one by one, the Buddha begins, as he does with the path, with right view. And here he explains, or he makes it clear, why he puts samadhi, right view, at the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path. And that is because in order to successfully practice any stage of the Noble Eightfold Path, one has to be able to discriminate correctly discriminate what is the right path factor and what is the deviant counterpart of that, the wrong factor. But there are many types of views, so one has to be able to distinguish what is wrong view, what is right view. If you can't distinguish wrong view from right view, then you can adopt a wrong view thinking it's correct thinking it's right view. And what the faculty which has the ability to discriminate wrong view from right view is right view itself. So right view not only discerns and understands the true nature of things, but it also can discriminate between wrong understanding and right understanding about the true nature of things. Similarly with thoughts, with intentions, we have many thoughts, many motives, many purposes, many intentions, and if we don't have right view, then we confuse them. We buy into the wrong intentions, wrong purposes, and we follow them through, thinking that they are right purposes, that they are praiseworthy intentions. That's why they say that, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> What's meant by good intentions here is not really truly wholesome, virtuous intentions, but wrong intentions which are masquerading as right intentions. And so if you have a right view, then you can distinguish what is a right intention, what is a wrong intention. Then we came to speech, right speech, wrong speech, and right action, wrong action. (coughs) (coughs) Now we come to the fifth factor of the path. This is right livelihood, sama-ajiva. And the Buddha has included livelihood within the Noble Eightfold Path because the way we acquire the basic requisites of life, the basic material supports of life, this is a very, say, a very decisive component in our moral life. The way we earn our living is a field in which we can either, if we follow the principle of right livelihood, then it can be a stepping stone to spiritual development, helping us to cultivate our virtue and to purify our mind. But if one If one adopts a wrong mode of livelihood, then one acquires one's living in a unwholesome way, a way which gives the opportunity for defilements to operate, and one generates unwholesome karma, which will become an obstacle to one's spiritual progress. Okay, so now the Buddha (coughs) begins his exposition on livelihood, again (coughs) in the same way He says, therein, monks, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands wrong livelihood as wrong livelihood, and right livelihood as right livelihood. This is one's right view. That is, in order to enter upon right livelihood properly, one has to be able to discriminate between wrong means of earning one's living and right means. (coughs) Okay, and now the Buddha says, he's going to explain what is wrong livelihood. And he gives five types of wrong livelihood in relation to the life of monks. He says here, scheming, talking, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. These are actually, each of these terms is a technical term which denotes a wrong way in which monks or nuns can obtain their means of living from lay people. Um, They're explained in detail in the Visuddhimagga, in the first chapter of the Visuddhimagga with many examples. Here I'll just give a very uh, uh, simple idea. Scheming is, in a way you could say, it's like putting on an act or launching a plot in order to obtain requisites or offerings from lay people. This is a basic principle of Buddha spirituality, is that it's meritorious to give gifts to the Sangha to make offerings to monks. And monks depend upon the lay people for their basic day-to-day needs, especially robes, alms food, lodging, medicine requirements, and any other things that they need at the monastery. And people often believe that (laughs) the more purified a monk is, the holier he is, the wiser, more enlightened he is, That they will get more merits from their gifts. So therefore, when monks are unscrupulous, then they might launch schemes and plots in order to uh, convince the lay people that they should make offerings to them. For example, a monk might think, well, he's expecting some lay people to come to the monastery, so he might think, ah, they're due to come here, maybe 10 o'clock. What I'll do, I'll sit outside on my veranda in meditation. When the car arrives, I won't even emerge from meditation. I'll just remain sitting as though I'm in deep absorption. And then maybe when the lay people are standing around watching, then I will just emerge as though I were coming out from a kind of inscrutable samadhi. (laughs) And then I'll make some utterance like, oh bliss, oh bliss, <laughs> something like this. And so when the lay people are standing and they see the monk sitting like this, and when they hear him making this utterance, they think, ah, he must be in Arahant.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <coughs> so we should make um, offerings to so this is one example of scheming another scheme monks might launch is to maybe they get together and they persuade uh, or they tell the lay people such and such a monk who's sitting over there is very very saintly don't tell him that you told us that we told you but if you make offerings to him you will be very very meritorious for yourselves and this monk, is, is the one who's pointed out, is just putting on a show of being very holy or saintly. And because of this, the lay people will make offerings to the monks. <coughs> okay, so this is some examples of scheming. Okay, then talking here. This is talking directly to people, to diaghis, in a way which is, you say, intended to be coercive or persuasive. Like if, say, the monk wants a kuti to be built. Here we should say, if the lay people have given an invitation to the monks, if they are known supporters, and they regularly say, if you need anything, just let us know. We're glad to help you. Or if they indicate by their attitude that they're willing to help, then it's all right, quite in order, to ask the lay people to help build or repair a kuti, even if they show they're very willing to help to build a kuti. But this is a case where, say, the lay people have not shown great eagerness to help a particular monk, but he comes up, maybe comes up to the house of the lay people, knocks on the door and says, you know, I need a new kuti built. Um, I know you're having some financial trouble, but um, I think we will get a lot of merit by doing so. And he speaks very forcefully, persuasively intended to just overpower the lay people so that they will make offerings. <laughs> uh, or else nowadays you will have people, maybe monks, go around from door-to-door, saying that they are trying to uh, gather funds to make a pilgrimage to India, to pay homage to the uh, sacred places of Buddhism, asking if you would like to make contributions to their bank account, (laughs) or giving money to them personally. This would be examples of uh, talking, which is a persuasive or coercive talking. (coughs) Then there's hinting, this is just dropping a hint to people that you would like something to be done, that you would like some offerings to be made. Saying, like for example, if when maybe there were some lay people come to call on a monk, and they would, you would say, well, if there was some truly pious, very very kind, compassionate, considerate but butney around, they would help to build a new kuti, or they would help to build. A new preaching hall for this monastery. Or if there were some truly kind Dayakas, they would donate some television sets to the, cooties, <laughs> to the to the monastery, one for each monk. <laughs> <coughs> okay, so this is um, hinting. Do you have some examples? Yeah, there are the,
1: the finest example you know very well is Bhakti the Sudhimagga. It's a kind, it's not direct it's hinting, but that remark, that behind the door we saw even these because we don't have an understanding that, that we master remark, but we can see the kitchen ah, what you have there that is that he hits on their belongings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in a very, very uh, strange metaphor, who is using their goods. Until
0: these people are almost coerced into give up. Yeah, no, no. Okay, and then the fifth of these is pursuing gain with gain. I think this <coughs> should be understood that, say, a monk will get offerings from lay people, or maybe he'll get robes. Maybe some medicine, other little items, soaps, toothpaste, whatever. He'll make up a collection of these things. Then he'll go to a shop, sell them, collect the mon- get the money in exchange for the items. Then he'll go off to a shop, another shop, and buy maybe a, a new um, cassette uh, cassette player, video <laughs> video. Player, whatever. Because so these are types of wrong livelihood that the Buddha has mentioned specifically for the sangha, because here he's addressing monks. But in other suttas the Buddha has mentioned the types of wrong livelihood for lay people. And maybe these are more important to mention in the course of this discussion. He mentions five types of trade that a True devotee, true follower of the path, should not engage in this. Is trading in meats, for example, by having a shop which sells meats.
1: Um, I think people should go first because there is a priority in it, that, and the most evil, most evil is first that is dealing in arms
0: was arms first don't you?
1: Yeah, arms is first dealing in human beings. Yeah. And then comes yeah. uh, the dealing in faith. Comes to dealing in okay. things.
0: Okay, so okay okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so first is dealing in weapons and arms. In the Buddha's day those would have been rather simple, very basic, primitive weapons. Nowadays we have vast weapons industry which are multi-billion dollar concerns, which are producing bombs, nuclear weapons, guns, knives, uh, landmines, every type of weapon. And since these are billion dollar concerns, they have millions of employees worldwide. In this way, dealing in weapons has increased exponentially in today's world. Dealing in weapons, Dealing in living beings. This will include raising cattle for slaughter. It's different from dealing in meat, since here one is not dealing with the with the dead, with the flesh of the dead animal, but one is raising cattle for slaughter. It Might also include dealing in prostitution. People who um, capture women or even men and use their services, sell them as prostitutes, or force them to work as prostitutes. Um, Dealing in beings could also include um, running operations that involve child labor, compelling young children to labor at very, very demeaning tasks. I think even
1: (coughs) in our most modern times Mm -hmm. where we are covering all those things nicely, these house-made things, where the agencies taking so much money from these poor people and then they come on the other side and there is not even somebody, only they are totally lost. That kind of, that is slavery and that is exploitation and that is also, but we are not, not pondering very much upon these problems, that people are laid out. Agencies who are taking so much money to much, are giving their sometimes false false papers. Hmm? is not different from the old slavery. Weapon
0: beings. Meat we've already used. Human beings,
1: That costs.
0: Yeah. Poison and, and then and then the alcohol. Even poison? Dealing in poison. What is it Alcohol. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, selling and selling alcohol and toxicants. And now that will include nowadays that will include many types of intoxicants besides alcohol, selling drugs. Um, <coughs> and perhaps even we can call even cheap entertainment, maybe even pornographic entertainment, to kind of intoxicant. And so we have this massive pornography industry. And then the fifth type of wrong livelihood is dealing in poisons. And poisons nowadays, of course, very few people are selling poisons directly. Maybe we could include under this heading
1: The whole stuff we put in our earth, which is only for quick, quick money, and in the end our water is polluted with overdoses of nitrogen, etc. 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 This is because certain people have only one interest and it is making gains.
0: And And they are supported... I don't know if the selling of fertilizer Uh, is...
1: Not always, but there are pesticides and these and that which are soared yeah. without warnings. Huh? So it is not clean that stuff. Pouring poison in the rivers. Only out of green. Destroying the very, very base of human life by poison. <coughs> of course today they say we cannot do it anymore ultimately that that is the addiction society has to bear. We cannot do it anymore, on got to last. those days they could do it. Because they observed the world. They knew what they had to plant together. They put home <coughs> but tree in the garden, so they, they didn't have any mosquitoes. Today you have to spray poison and then the animals are eating and the whole environment goes down. So that is also poison apart from
0: sārin and Okay, so these are the five types of wrong livelihood for lay people. Okay, now the Buddha takes up right livelihood. And again, as in the case of the other factors, he says right livelihood is twofold. There is the right livelihood that is connected with the ten with the ossicles, and which is partaking of merit, ripening on the side of attachment. And then there is the super-mundane or trans- tran- transcendental right livelihood. Okay, the right livelihood affected by taints is simply, the Buddha just used a very general formula, that the noble disciple abandons all of the types of wrong livelihood and gains his living by right livelihood, by some type of living which is, you could say, honest, beneficial to others, and which will not force him to engage in any type of unwholesome activity. Okay, so just basic right livelihood by which an ordinary person lives, that is the mundane right livelihood, the right livelihood connected with the taint. Okay, then we come to the noble right livelihood. This is the truly super-mundane or taintless right livelihood. And as I I, I explained in the case of the other two ethical path factors of right speech and right action, the super-mundane right livelihood is not a particular way of earning one's living but it's rather a particular mental factor, a chaitasika, a mental faculty which arises in connection with the supermundane path. The supermundane path is a state of consciousness, a chitta. And within that state of consciousness there are many mental factors. And one of those mental factors is called right livelihood, transcendent right livelihood. That is one of these three abstinences. It is the mental factor of the super mundane path which cuts off the defilements that are responsible for engaging in wrong livelihood. So when the super-mundane path arises, at that moment one is not busily engaged in earning one's living in some way. But there is still right livelihood present as this mental factor, this one mental factor, which is performing this function of, you could say it's closing off the door to the possibility of wrong livelihood. In the case of an ordinary person, even though he might be observing right livelihood in his day-to-day life, until he reaches the transcendent path, there's still the possibility of engaging in wrong livelihood. Even if one doesn't do it in this lifetime, one might do it in future lifetimes. But once the super-mundane path arises, it closes off the possibility of engaging in wrong livelihood. I think, in my belief, even with the attainment of the first noble path, the path of stream entry, the possibility of wrong livelihood is permanently cut off. But I just can't see it possible. I can't see the possibility that somebody who's a stream enter or once returner can engage in a wrong livelihood. But still, the path factor of right livelihood is present in each of the four supramundane stages of the path, all the way through to the stage of our And then the Buddha defines this supramundane right livelihood using just a string of synonyms. It is the desisting from wrong livelihood, abstaining, refraining, abstinence from it, in one whose mind is noble, whose mind is painless, who possesses the noble path, and is developing the noble path. This is the right livelihood that is the noble factor of the path. Okay, and now again in the case of Right Livelihood, the Buddha, in order to complete his exposition, he brings in the two factors of Right Effort and Right Mindfulness. He says that the Right Effort here is the effort that one makes to abandon wrong livelihood and to enter upon Right Livelihood. And then Right Mindfulness, is the mindfulness which one applies to the task of abandoning wrong livelihood and of acquiring right livelihood. And so here again, as in the case of the other factors, one has right livelihood accompanied by these three other factors. Right view, by which one distinguishes wrong livelihood and right livelihood, and right effort, by which was that the energy, the striving, the endeavor by which one engages in right livelihood, and the right mindfulness that one applies to the task of living by right livelihood. Okay, at this point now, the Buddha has gone through all of the seven factors of the path that accompany right concentration. So now we have a picture of this Noble Right Concentration as the Right Concentration which is accompanied by the other seven path factors, from Right View through Right Mindfulness. Now the Buddha takes the teaching back to the beginning, we could say, and now he's going to show why this particular sutta is called the Great Forty. He's going to expound forty factors which we can say are rooted in the Noble Eightfold Path. <coughs> he goes back to the beginning and he says, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? In one, first I'll read it, then I'll explain In one of right view, right intention springs up or comes into being. In one of right intention, right speech comes into being. In one of right speech, right action comes into being. From right action, right livelihood. From right livelihood, right effort. From right effort comes right mindfulness. From right mindfulness, right concentration. We will continue further, but I'll just bring a momentary pause here. Okay, right view, the Buddha says, is the Pubangama, the forerunner, the beginner, the guide to the whole path. So through right view, right intention arises. Taking the definition of right intention as thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of harmlessness. One begins with right view, the right view, say, of the ownership of action, of one's responsibility for one's own karma. When one has this right view or right understanding, then one realizes the danger of engaging in wrong action. And one realizes that wrong action springs from wrong thinking, from having wrong purposes. If one's thoughts are dominated by desire and sensuality, by anger and hatred, by cruelty, then one will be inclined to engage in evil actions, unwholesome actions, immoral actions, which will generate unwholesome karma, and bring one into future suffering. If one understands that good, virtuous actions arise from right thoughts, then one will have the motivation for developing good and wholesome thoughts. When one has the right view, right understanding of the Four Noble Truths, then one sees that All existence in samsara is suffering. Since one sees that all existence is suffering, then one doesn't want to be bound up any further in samsaric existence. And one realizes that to get free from this samsaric suffering, one has to abandon wrong thinking and developing right thinking. So in this way, right view becomes the cause, or basis, the foundation for right thinking, for right intention. Okay, the next part of the formula, I think one shouldn't interpret too literally. From right intention comes right speech, then right action, then right livelihood. Since I would say that there's not really a causal sequence between speech, a direct causal sequence between right speech to right action, right action, to right livelihood. Rather, what I would say is that this block of three terms, right speech, right action, right livelihood, originates from right intention. Actually, I already wrote, that I was just planning to write a few weeks ago. So we see right view here leads into right intention. And then right intention, coupled with right view, is the basis for the three morality factors of the path. That is, when one has right intention, then one takes or follows the principles of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Okay, now, even from the very beginning of the path, we have right effort, because even to arouse right view, one needs energy or effort. To transform that right view into right intentions, one has to apply effort. To undertake the three morality factors, right speech and so on, one has to apply effort. So one shouldn't think right effort comes only after right livelihood but right effort is present from the very beginning. Nevertheless, the three factors, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, work together as those factors of the path which are crucial in the development of the higher mind. The factors which are responsible for the purification of the mind, and especially for developing samadhi or concentration. So here, right effort takes on a new dimension, a subtler and higher dimension. It's no longer the effort simply to observe moral principles, but the effort to purify the mind of the distractions and defilements, the effort to unify it, to collect it, to compose it, and to focus its energy upon a single point, which is mud And in order for this right effort to succeed, for this subtle effort in mental training to succeed, it has to be built upon a foundation of pure conduct of upright conduct. In this way, we can say that the three morality factors, right speech, right action, right livelihood, are the roots or groundwork for right effort. Since If one is transgressing the principles of morality, then no matter how much energy one applies to meditation practice, one will (coughs) one simply will not be able to attain the true samadhi, right concentration, intended by the Buddhist And so when one has that foundation of morality, then one takes up the effort to develop concentration. And it is that effort which is meant, (coughs) which is here meant by right effort. It is the effort to abandon those mental states which are obstructive. Well, first, it's the effort to prevent the arising of unwholesome mental factors. Mental factors which are obstructive to concentration. It is the effort to abandon the unwholesome mental factors already (coughs) arisen, and it is the effort to arouse and to perfect those mental qualities which are conducive to concentration. But right effort doesn't work in achieving right concentration. Right effort does not work alone. But right effort engages in a a particular task. And the task in which right effort engages is the cultivation of the four Satipatthana, that is the four establishments or foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness, those provide the actual, you could say, working ground of Buddhist meditation. The effort to be mindful of the body of feelings, states of mind, and of mental phenomena. In order to develop right mindfulness, one has to be attentive to one's experience from moment to moment, using generally at the beginning a single focal point, such as the breath, in anapanasati and mindfulness of breathing and then applying mindfulness repeatedly moment after moment to that focal point of attention and what <coughs> empowers that state of consciousness which is focusing upon the object is <coughs> that is right effort and the actual application of attention, the application of awareness to the object, that is right mindfulness. And so one has right effort and right mindfulness working together as a team and the fruit of right mindfulness is right concentration, sama samadhi. In the Sutta method of explanation, Samadhi, right concentration, is defined as the four jhanas, the four meditative absorptions. According to the commentaries, they allow also what is called upachara samadhi, access or neighborhood concentration, also to qualify as right concentration. In any case, right concentration represents the culmination of all the previous ten factors of the past. And first there is mundane, this distinction isn't right mundane and First we have mundane this concentration. And we find this is the interesting thing, in right concentration let's say, right concentration arises on the basis of the other seven path factors. But right concentration is not simply a final culminating point of these seven factors, but it also includes the other seven factors within itself, associated with itself. In other words, we could see the relationship between right concentration and the other path factors in two different ways. They're not mutually exclusive, but rather they're complementary. They can go together. It's a little bit like having bifocal vision. We see the object one way with one eye, another way with the other eye, and in that way we get three-dimensional vision. Okay. From, the would say, the causal aspect, we see each of the other seven factors as being a stepping stone to right concentration. Like going up a staircase, you go one step at a time, till you get up on top of the step, you get on top of the landing, and you finish going up the seven steps. (coughs) But in the case of mental development, it's not like climbing the staircase. It would be as if (laughs) you climb up the seven steps, you step onto the landing, and lo and behold, you look at your feet, and the other seven steps have somehow collapsed together and are present in the landing itself. (laughs) So you have these two ways of looking at the structure of the path. In the sequential way, you go, in a sense, one step at a time, factor by factor, till one eventually arrives at right concentration. In the, what we call the simultaneous perspective, one sees right concentration as the culminating point which contains or which is associated with, accompanied by, all the other seven factors which are assisting, strengthening, supporting right concentration. They're all there together. Okay, now this is the mundane right concentration. But as one... when one reaches the mundane right concentration, that is not yet the end or goal of the path. One has to eventually reach the super-mundane right concentration. And that is the concentration which develops through wisdom, through Panya. So on the basis of that mundane right concentration, one develops insight meditation, that is developing the right view of insight along with the right intention of insight. And when this right view and right intention become fully mature, then one arrives at the super-mundane right concentration, which is also accompanied by the other seven factors. Okay, now the Buddha continues the sequence here. We're still in paragraph 34. He says from In one of right concentration, right knowledge comes into being. In one of right knowledge, right deliverance comes into being. Okay, this right knowledge begins with the development of insight. As one develops insight on the basis of right concentration, then one's understanding of the real nature of things begins to develop, to evolve. One begins by developing insight, uh, contemplating phenomena as (coughs) impermanent, as suffering, as anatta, non-self. As this insight descends to deeper and deeper levels, as it penetrates deeper and deeper dimension of phenomena. Eventually, it penetrates right through all the conditioned phenomena and comes to the unconditioned, to Nibbana, to the deathless element. And that penetration of the deathless element, that is the wisdom of the supermundane path. And accompanying that wisdom of the super mundane path is the right knowledge. Accomp- I'm sorry. Accompanying that wisdom of the super mundane path is the super right concentration, the transcendental right samadhi. Knowledge of the Arahant, the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, which is fully matured, that is what's meant here by Right Knowledge. And when that Right Knowledge arises, then it frees the mind permanently, <coughs> irreversibly, completely, of all the defilements, even in their subtlest, most deeply-rooted
1: aspects.
0: So this liberation, this permanent, irreversible, total liberation of the mind, that samavimuti, right liberation, perfect liberation. So the Buddha says here, the path of the disciple in higher training has eight factors. That is, the disciple in training, the stream-enterer or let's say even the disciple who's aiming for stream-entry, not yet the stream-enterer, the stream-enterer who's training for once-return, the once-returner training for non-return, the non-returner training for arahanship. They have eight factors. What are the eight factors? What are they? What are they? What are they? Which factors? Okay, the factors, the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. Even the non-returner, we say, we we cannot say, in the case of the non-returner even, we cannot say that he has complete right knowledge and right liberation. Partly, yes, partly right knowledge, partly right liberation, but not yet perfect or complete knowledge, not yet perfect and complete liberation. But when the non-returner pierces through that final stage and comes out with the fruit of our the the pala. Then he has complete right knowledge and right liberation. So that's why the Buddha says the arahant possesses these ten factors: all the eight factors of the noble path, plus right liberation, right knowledge, and right liberation. Yeah. Venerable Sumedha just made a good point. Um, You see, the Buddha doesn't teach a tenfold path because right knowledge and right liberation are not path factors that one trains in. One trains Hmm. in the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And when those eight factors are mature, then right knowledge and right liberation come on their own. Those are, we could say, the fruits not in the technical sense, but those are the fruits or reasons. Okay, now we come to the concluding portion of the Sutra. Here the Buddha goes back to the beginning and shows or establishes the contrast between the right factors and the wrong factors. and shows how there is an irreducible opposition between the right factors and the wrong factors. Not only is there an opposition, but there is even a kind of struggle or contest between them. And in this contest, it is the task of the right factors to abolish and eliminate the wrong factors and the states associated with the wrong factors. And so the Buddha, coming back to the beginning, again starts with right view and he says that right view comes first and right view comes first because right view has the task of abolishing wrong view and the many unwholesome states that originate with wrong view as condition so there are these two types of views the wrong views Views which deny the reality of karma and rebirth. Views which engage in flights of speculation. Views which affirm a real, substantial self. All such views can be comprised within wrong views. And these wrong views obstruct the path to liberation. And not only do they directly obstruct the path to liberation, but they also engender in one who accepts them unwholesome states that are contingent upon this wrong view. Thus one who has the wrong view that there's no reality to moral discrimination, who holds that there's no life after death, is prone to engage in unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome actions, unwholesome speech, and so on. And so right view, in its first function, eliminates wrong view. And by eliminating wrong view, it also serves to eliminate an entire cluster of unwholesome qualities, evil actions, unwholesome dispositions that congregate around wrong view and is sustained and nourished by wrong view. But right view not only counters wrong view and its associated factors, but it also generates, nourishes and sustains the wholesome qualities of it one who has right view both the mundane right view which affirms the reality of karma and its fruit, the reality of rebirth the reality of our bondage within samsara is prone to avoid unwholesome actions and to cultivate wholesome and meritorious thoughts words and Again, one who has the right view that culminates in liberation, the right view of the three characteristics, the right view of the Four Noble Truths, the right view of dependent origination, such a person will be disposed to take up the practice of the path that leads to liberation. And in this way, right view brings along with it. all the super mundane, liberative right view brings along all the other qualities what the Buddha calls the Bodhi-Pathya the states partaking of enlightenment, the states which contribute to enlightenment, all of them are uh, generated sustained and held together through this transcendental, liberated right view. Similarly, in one of right intention, wrong intention is abolished. That is, when one develops the mundane right intention, the intention of renunciation, one eliminates the disposition sensuality. When one generates the right intention of benevolence or goodwill, then one eliminates